You're listening to Tech Square ATL. We tell the stories of Tech Square, the heart of Atlanta's tech scene. Breakthrough talent, breakthrough ideas, and breakthrough companies. All right. All right. Welcome. Welcome to the Hump Day Exchange. I'm, the, I'm your host, Scott Henderson, a.k.a. Scotty Hendo on the interwebs. Uh, we're recording in front of a live audience or something that sounds like a live audience right here in Tech Square, the heart of Atlanta's tech scene, and are excited to bring you uh, this episode. Hump Day Exchange is a collaborative effort of Sandbox ATL, ATDC, and Georgia Tech Scheller College of Business. This uh, episode is entitled Harvesting Innovation. Uh, we'll explore how large corporations, startups, universities, and government can cultivate innovative ideas and help them to market. Um, we have another stellar group of guests uh, with us this episode, KP Reddy from the Combine, Deborah Lamb from Georgia Tech's Institute for People and Technology, and Thiago Olson from ATDC, Georgia Tech's, I mean, Georgia's Technology Incubator, uh, here, right here at Georgia Tech. If you're listening to our show for the first time, here's how the program will go. After a short introduction to the topic, I'm going to introduce uh, and invite each of our guests into the hot seat for a one-on-one -on -one conversation focused on their perspective. Um, once all three are through the hot seat, we'll gather them for a roundtable conversation where they get to ask each other questions. Then we'll uh, finish with a town hall-style Q&A with our live audience guests. So let's begin with setting the frame. All right, we love our buzzwords, don't we? What words do you have on your buzzword bingo card today? Is it synergy? Is it collaboration? The cloud? Disruption? I don't know, all those score high, but let's focus on buzzword innovation. So everyone's claiming to be bringing innovation to the world from government agencies to big companies to upstarts. But, uh, you know, drilling into the world, I like drilling into the word, excuse me, I like to think about it as uh, seeking a breakthrough. You know, breakthroughs seem to come at the oddest times because of the um, oddest connections. So can you really engineer breakthroughs to happen? Can you create environments that lead to breakthroughs? Uh, a mantra I've used is that density is destiny. A density of shared experiences leads to trust, which leads to collaboration, and collaborations lead to breakthroughs. So change your density and you can change your destiny. But can you really do that on purpose, or is that an accident? So with the billions of dollars being poured into corporate, governmental, and startup innovation efforts, are these dollars really creating breakthroughs, or is this just hype and theater? With all that in mind, let's explore where we really are now, how far we have to go, and what's possible. So to do that, let's welcome our first guest into the hot seat, KP Reddy from the Combine. All right. <laughs> KP is currently co-founder and partner of the Combine, which aims to commercialize corporate innovation. Uh, over the past 25 years, KP has been a technologist, subject matter expert, founder, CEO, advisor, yada, 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 CEO of the software and <laughs> automation, uh, which was a, uh, a software and automation, which is a disruptive robotic sewing automation technology, uh, managing director for the enterprise transformation, uh, excuse me, managing director for enterprise transformation for Geary uh, Technologies, uh, the famed architect the interim general manager for ATDC, and um, he is a proud Yellow Jacket, earning his master's and bachelor's in civil engineering from Georgia Tech. So, welcome, KP. Thank you, Scott. Your mom and dad should be proud of you. Slightly. What mistakes, KP, do universities and large companies make when it comes to taking ideas to market? Hmm. So, it's, it's easy to beat up universities Universities are easy targets. Corporations are probably even easier. Um, but really, it's they focus on um, you know their financial metrics, which is really easy to do. And I try to remind people: Xerox invented the mouse. Xerox invented Windows. 
if it was left at Xerox Park, we would not have mice and windows. Uh, it took entrepreneurs to kind of release that innovation and do something with it. Because to me, a $50 million business is interesting. To GE, it's very disinteresting. So there's kind of this math equation that they have to run through to make decisions that just doesn't, you know, if the math doesn't work, they're not going to do it. So it's, it's quite deliberate. It's not, uh, are they good, are they bad? It's highly engineered. It's, it's their approach. So what is it that, um, what's the gap for them then? I mean, you say it's the approach, but what, what it, what, what, they brought those ideas, but they didn't bring them to market. They came up with the ideas. Right, because the economics don't work. You know, I, um, I was with the CEO of AT&T, and he explained it to me best. He said, we're a value stock. We have investors put money and their good faith money into us to get a dividend. We don't miss our dividends. It's about earnings. That earnings do not equate to innovation. Innovation is about high risk. It's about spending lots of cash and taking lots of time to get something to market um, that's interesting. And that doesn't fit into their financial plans. So large companies are generally value stocks that are, it's all about converting revenue into earnings and not about innovation. Um, that's why they went public. If you want to innovate, don't go public. <laughs> All right, so let's uh, flip to the other side of the equation. So wh what delusions do startups and investors have when it comes to taking these ideas to market? So um, startups are always delusional. It's their nature. Um, it's uninformed optimism for most startups. Um, and I think startups think that because they have a good idea that that's enough. Um, and I always tell startups, spend 80% of your time studying the problem, 20% on the solution, because if you're passionate about the problem, the solution can vary, it's okay. Um, investors have, the right investors have really good ideas, and I think that's where a lot of startups think, you know, investors are just dumb money, they don't know what they're doing. Um, and the reality is investors probably have the best kind of perch and pur purview of what the future looks like, and it's about that kind of collaboration between investors and startups. Well, you've, sitting, you've sat at different seats at the table, the very real mm -hmm. table. You've been representing big companies, representing universities, representing small companies. What are the cultural differences between those? Uh, they're massive. You know, corporations uh, working for a company, it's very job-oriented. Um, the metrics around what you have to do and what's in it for you um, are very different. Um, when you're working for a big company, it's about your performance review and maybe that three to 5% increase and maybe your next uh, promotion. Whereas startups were much more, uh, we want major impact very quick. Universities, you know, when I was uh, running ATDC, um, I always told myself, whatever the right entrepreneurial move to make is, do the opposite and it'll work in the university. Hmm. So you have to do basically what's not um, natural. It's all unnatural behavior in a university setting. It doesn't make any sense. So you have to do the opposite of what's natural behavior as an entrepreneur. Well, we, what, um, go a little deeper on that. I mean, what do you mean? The George Costanza strategy. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, basically, right. No, it is. I mean, so literally, uh, I, if you have private money that wants to come invest in startups, at somewhere like ATDC. Um, they can't, universities aren't allowed to broker those relationships. You're not allowed to drive incentives around those relationships because you're a university employee and you live and serve under a certain pay band and job description. 
and you're not allowed to benefit. And the minute you tell people they cannot benefit from a transaction, that they cannot benefit from success, mm. you automatically attract right, selection bias. You automatically attract people that are highly disincentivized uh, for success. Scott just spilled his I drink just, uh, all over my shirt. I just spilled my drink right out down my chest. So there goes that really nice martini that Ian made for me on my chest. Thank you. Good thing we don't have video. Yeah. No. <laughs> and it's not wine. So keep going with it. Yeah. Yeah, so. So, so you have to look at incentives and motives. And I think the, the challenge with, um, with anything, why do, what are people's motives in going to join a university or a corporation or a startup? And you go join a university... Um, if you're a professor, which I have lots of friends that are professors, you get tenure and then you're, un you know, you're tenured and then you're untouchable. You don't do it because you have capitalistic motives. Corporations are not that different, right? You go there because you want the job, you want to be able to go to all the conferences, you understand some level of predictability in your economic incentives, and that's a good living. There's nothing wrong with any of them, right? right? I have some professor friends that have a much better quality of life than I do. Um, so I think so. I think it's just what you want, and I think um, in all of them, there's a spectrum of there's like this weird sp spectrum of free will that exists, and I think it varies. You know, if you're an entrepreneur, you have ultimate free will, but you also get to deal with the consequences of your free will. So, uh, rapid fire question: uh, If you were talking to your undergraduate self, what advice would you give yourself? Um, Spend more t So I started my first startup two years after working, so two to three years after college. Um, spend more time in the corporate world. Uh, I think there's more benefit to hack from the inside versus hacking from the outside. Mm. It, you can spend your time figuring out the corporate systems that exist and finding what I call the veins of gold and how they, what their dysfunctions are. And if you can exploit those dysfunctions, that's where the money is, and I didn't spend enough time um, in those big corporations understanding what, how to exploit and hack those corporations. All right, uh, last one is uh, where can folks find you on the interwebs? Um, you can email me. Oh my God, email. You still do that? Email, I still do email. Uh, kp at thecombine.co, and then I'm on the Twitters and Instagrams and all that good stuff at uh, ready underscore kp. Cool. Well, you made it through the hot seat, KP. Thank you very much. Whew. Round of applause. All right. As we exit, KP, we'll welcome our next uh, guest, Deborah Lamb from uh, IPAT, the Institute for People and Technology at the Georgia Institute of Technology. Welcome, Deborah. Thank you. I'm super excited to have you because uh, it's proof that uh, uh, the, the Pittsburgh work I've done uh, actually led to a, someone coming here. I'm sure it's all me that got you here. <laughs> Uh, shout out to our friends uh, Adam and Kit from Figment up there in, in uh, Pittsburgh who uh, have had a chance to work with you over the years. And as I heard that you were moving here, I said, hey, guys, I'd like to meet her. And boom, there you are. So glad to know that Georgia Tech picked you up and got you, uh, got you uh, going here. Because Deborah is the Managing Director for Smart Cities and Inclusive Innovation at IPAT. That's Georgia Tech's Institute for People and Technology. Um, she came to us from the, uh, as I said, idyllic Pittsburgh, uh, the Rust Belt Queen uh, of, of cities. That's a beautiful city. Heinz, one of my first factory tours was Heinz ketchup. <laughs> Not much of a tour. It was a lot of a gift shop. But um, uh, while she was in Pittsburgh, she served as the chief innovation and performance officer for the city. 
She's founded, led, and served on the board of an impressive list of civic organizations and was named on Management Today's 35 Women Under 35. Wow. Um, I am excited that you're here because you, you bring in a unique in perspective to Georgia Tech, uh, having been in, uh, you know, out in the field and the city level, dealing uh, with private sector folks, dealing with university folks, dealing with startups, dealing with big companies, big foundations, all that stuff. Um, and definitely uh, your work here, uh, I know that you're just starting here at Georgia Tech. I think it's going to be fun to watch unfold. I'm curious, um, what are the one or two of the proven effective levers uh, that governments have that they can pull on to foster more innovation-friendly ecosystems? You were working uh, with the city there and, and with the mayor. Uh, curious, what, what, were, what do you do? What are the levers that you do have available to you? Um, yeah, thank you. Um, so I think one of the, the things that we're seeing in government is um, walking the talk. I think that's, that's a really important com a component to this. So as government is preaching innovation and thinking about economic development and, and trying to attract industry and collaboration, you know, I think first and foremost, you know, what they can do is show themselves how, how they can do this and, and do it well. Um, so, you know, that doesn't involve, you know, outside uh, um, partners too much. It's, it's really just looking internally um, to do that. And, and so what you've seen is a spur of innovation teams um, and innovation leaders coming out of government um, and government actually kind of going outside into the private sector, into the startups to hire. Um, individuals that might not have thought of about government work um, to take their insight and take their experience and take their advice and incorporate it um, into government practice. Um, and so I think those, those are really effective levers because what that shows is that, you know, government's open for business. Government is interested and willing to um, serve uh, in that space. So um, I, I guess... I'm curious, having been inside the, the, the machine of a, of, a, of a city government, how much interplay is there between the, the business sector, uh, the university sector, and, and, and the city itself? I mean, I know, I mean, I, I think, I would think with, it would flow from the, the lead leadership, like from, from the mayor, him mm -hmm. or herself. Mm -hmm. Uh, would set that tone. But I'm curious how much interplay is there between? Yeah, I, I think there there's a lot and potentially even more. I mean, I, I've, I've worked in, you know, all branches of government from the local to the state to the national. I actually started in the private sector for many years advising government. So I, I was in that sector and then went into um, local government um, and, and now obviously in the university. What was the, so, the allure? I mean, what, would, what brought you from private sector into the government? Um, so it was, you know, I, I was a, a management consultant and, and I did some really, really great work around urban design and sustainable development and urban policy. Um, and it was a really great foundation to uh, analytical thinking. Um, but ultimately, what is the case with most consultants is that you never get to implement the recommendations mm. that you um, you know, provide. And so you never see the full life cycle. Hmm. You know, you go on to your next project. And so what I've said before is that, you know, even if I fail, I want to know how I failed. Um, you know, and so I, I really wanted to take 
the years of recommendations and strategies that I provided for governments and other um, actors into a, a setting that I could at least learn from. And uh, you know, what better way to do it than in Pittsburgh? It's funny you mentioned that because I, I do. I'm starting to go through my Rolodex of people who I've seen in innovation roles within different cities and on federal levels, and there is that correlation between management consultants and people that, that, that go into that. I mean, so that idea of seeing and having the opportunity to, to implement ideas probably is, uh, I hadn't seen it until you just mentioned it. That's good. So in terms of uh, inclusive innovation, I know diversity has been a thing, uh, like a topic, like diverse people in here, but inclusion has become kind of a, a term and, uh, and an idea that has emerged in the last, I'd say, two or three years. And some people who are listening might not know what that means. So um, what, is, what does inclusion mean? What does inclusive in innovation mean to you? Yeah, I guess this started um, from the work I did in Pittsburgh when we launched the Inclusive Innovation Roadmap. And, and that was really um, the city's strategic plan to, to spur innovation, but spur it in a way that you know recognized, uh, frankly, the inequalities that come with innovation and um, the the traditional startup scene and 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 the economic development. And so, what what we saw um, when we were doing our research on innovation was that some of the world's most innovative breakthrough cities were also some of the world's most exclusive. Um, the inequalities were widening, um, and there were definitely pockets and areas and sectors and networks that weren't part of the growth um, and, and the dynamic um, uh, development that was happening in cities. And um, we were very conscious that if we were to grow, we wanted to try to incorporate um, as, as many people and, 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 and be conscious of, of that growth um, as possible. So when, when you look at inclusion, um, I mean, who's, who's missing from the table? And, and, and then how, how do you invite them to the table? Yeah, and I, I think there's there's um, you know definitely different different um, sectors that aren't part. I mean, we uh, were particularly um, cognizant that if you weren't um, and, and this is again speaking with even my new university hat on. If you weren't connected to a university, you know, if you didn't have that education or that network or that pedigree, then you lost out on certain resources. Um, that doesn't mean that your idea or your um, innovation wasn't, um, you know, as competitive, but you didn't have that support, possibly. Um, and so, you know, those those are an example of pockets that, that we wanted to make sure we we're cognizant. So in Pittsburgh, you know, there was a really good triangle um, between the universities, and you're probably familiar with what we had in Bakery Square, which is Google, and you know, a lot of different um, the old tech. Factory, right? yeah. yeah, lots of different tech companies. But if if you weren't part of, you know, that that triangle, you know, if you weren't connected to Carnegie Mellon or the University of Pittsburgh, or you weren't part of Google, you know, how were you to get involved? How were you to get the mentorship or get the guidance? Um, and so, you know, we wanted to think about those types of channels um, in order to engage, or to think about how we can start that engagement younger. Mm. 
you know, before you even, um, you know, think about high school or university, you know, how can we make sure that you are developing the skill sets um, to start and be competitive? So I'm, I'm curious, I mean, having uh, spent uh, a, you know, time in Pittsburgh and now relatively new to Atlanta, and what do you see as some of, of our city's immediate opportunities? What are, what are the low-hanging fruit that we can pick? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously still learning, and I, I think there's, there's a lot of um, interesting views and, and, you know, people that have been in this space longer that, you know, would know a lot more about it than I. But I, I am really um, attracted by the multi-sector um, opportunities for collaboration. You know, the fact is that there are a lot of very involved industry mm. here that, um, you know, is based in Atlanta and therefore call it home even though they have international um, remit. So, you know, that level of engagement is, is just remarkable combined with, you know, world-renowned university and exciting startup, you know, really really engage civil society. Mm -hmm. um, so those kind of collaborations are, are really exciting. Um, but to your earlier question, I, I think there's a lot more room for more collaboration. Awesome. Well, we'll have uh, more time to dive deeper in our, our round table and, and town hall section. But um, in the interim, uh, Deborah, just to put a bow on this one, where can folks find you on the interwebs? Oh, again, um, the, the typical channels, email, social media, et cetera. You can, you can also come to Tech Square and, I, and talk to me in person because exactly. I am all about. You're here. Exactly. So, you know, <laughs> please, please, we can do it the old fashioned way too. Uh, and you might even uh, find a way to get um, uh, one of the burger shops here to put French fries on the burgers so we can have some. Yeah. Well, on. yeah. I mean, if you want to meet with me, if you bring like dessert, I am, that's even bonus. So <laughs> anything with chocolate. <laughs> nice. Now people know how to get to your heart. All right. So thank you, Deborah. You made it through the hot seat. Well, welcome back shortly. And as she goes to back, we'll get to Tiago. Tiago, Tiago, whatever we're going to call you, Tiago. What, what should we call hello, you? Hello, hello. How do you pronounce your first name? Is that, I know it's a... Tiago. Tiago. Yep. I don't want to mispronounce it the entire time, and you're saying, my name is Steve. Uh, okay. <laughs> so Tiago is, a, is an accomplished fin financial tech and connected hardware, uh, hardware entrepreneur, uh, advisor, and investor. You, you might recognize him from his time on CNN, Fox News, BBC, and Bloomberg Surveillance. That's a hot one right there. Uh, Watch that all the time, right, Scott? <laughs> I didn't even know that was a channel. All right. But this is the best part. While in high school, Tiago built a functional nuclear reactor, a fusion reactor, nuclear. in his basement and was called, quote, badass by Wired <laughs> Magazine. Tiago co-founded and sold the fintech startup Stratos, uh, conducted research at CERN, you're the one who's uh, ruined the universe by having that going on, I saw. Black holes. The black holes, that's right. Um, mm -hmm. And the, the Weizmann Institute of Science in Israel and served in various innovation and engineer, engineering roles for the Department of Defense and Department of Energy. I know most people can go out and buy their own planet name, but you really do have a planet named after you. Uh, <laughs> 23262, that always brings my heartstrings. Uh, Tiago Olson. So if you look into the sky and look for 23262 Tiago Olson. Yeah, just look real hard. 
It's a star, but it's a small one. I mean, it's a planet, but it's a small one. Let's just, I'm going to put you back. It's ground pretty, you. It's pretty minor. I don't want your mind to go too big here. <laughs> I don't want your ego. Uh, you serve as a part-time temporary entrepreneur in residence at the Advanced Technology Development Center here in uh, Georgia Tech's Technology Incubator. So uh, glad to have you. Thank uh, you for I'm having me. feeling a little intimidated that a guy with planetary uh, uh, impact has been in my presence, uh, <laughs> but I'm not because I know you. Um, so you're Swedish, right? Uh, Finnish. Finnish. Last name's Finnish. Yeah, see, see how I just slighted you? I just called you Swede and you're a Finn. <laughs> yeah. You're not even right. All right, so uh, let's just uh, start. Take three. All right. Uh, so what, what is the difference between um, creating breakthroughs inside the federal government agencies that you worked in versus working in a startup? I bet that's just a whole different well, they're, world. They're, they couldn't be polar opposites, right? So I, I started out on the you know, kind of the federal government, uh, Department of Energy, Department of Defense side, um, and eventually moved over to, to being an entrepreneur. And those are both ends of the spectrum, you know, and you know, different corporations are somewhere kind of in between, right? Um, so on the government side, typically, if, if you're looking to innovate, you're trying to be very good at project and program management, um, doling out research funds. There's the SBIR program and, and everything that'll try to fund innovative research. Uh, but for the most part, they realize you know, we're, we're, not, we're not doing this in-house. We're you know, funding small businesses and external kind of resources to do a lot of the, the innovative research. And you're, you're doing a lot of management of that. Um, now, you know, I, I was also lucky enough to you know, there's research going on internally. It's just uh, the amount of funding going there is, is you know, there, there, there's a lot smaller amount. Um, so there's still internal research, um, kind of you know behind the curtain and everything going on in, in you know DoD labs and everything. So um, I was able to really dive into fuel cell research um, and, and kind of a, applying plasmas to fuel cells, you know, whatever that means, right? So. Um, but for the that's most very part, far, that's far, <laughs> far afield that's, from that's, financial tech. I mean, that's, that's, that's way different than what I ended up doing on the entrepreneurial side. But um, <laughs> from a government perspective, um, it, it's, it's largely trying to facilitate um, innovation in the private sector um, and, and you know, kind of dole out research funds and, and, and manage uh, those funds in a strategic fashion. Hmm. Um, and you know, that's kind of largely what I experienced at the DOD. And then at the DOE, um, or Department of Energy, you're gonna have a lot more uh, basic research, is, mm. is what I'd call it, right? So they're not commercializing, but they're really trying to dig into you know, different kind of energy sources for the future, and, yeah. and particle physics, and all that, like answering basic phys physics questions. Mm. And that's only research that can be funded by the government because mm. there's no yeah, there's no no market incentive there, there yeah and the, there, there's no financial return there um, mm. and, and that's something that the government can afford to do um, and that the U.S. is is really uh, spent a lot compared to you know, a lot of other countries out there in, in research that there's there's no immediate returns but uh, you know they're they're able to invest in a much longer term horizon 50 years 100 years. Fusion energy, for example, is an area I've dabbled in in, in, you know, in in kind of the Department of Energy, but it's always been kind of the energy source of the, 
the future 50 years from now, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It's always been that way. So, hmm. so what, what are some of the advantages that these large entities like government and universities have compared to the smaller companies? Um, you know, it, it, it's largely, you know, kind of the, the financial resources in, in, in backing, right? So it's not being, removing the timing pressure. So if you're a startup, you have to think about, I have, I have X burn rate per month. Um, how much, you know, I've just jumped out of my job. Mm. I personally can go this far. Um, and, you know, if, if you raised money, it's my runway goes out 18 months. I've got to figure shit out by then, right? Mm. So it's, you have that on the startup end. And on the corporate end, it's, um, you're, you're tied to quarterly financials and, and you know, it's, it's not quite as immediate as you know, the, the startup and they're able to plan out a little bit, a little bit farther, farther in advance and, and all of that. But you know, there's still very much, especially if you're a public company, you're still tied to those, you know, those financials, right? So that's, that's where some larger companies, the larger you get, it's, it's that balance that KP kind of mentioned where Investments into innovation are at a time scale that's larger than what you know, the street, you know, the, the stock market is, is really thinking about, right? Mm -hmm. So it's it's trying to balance that because you know if you don't invest in that, then you're going to run into some trouble. Mm -hmm. um, and if I'm following what you're saying, is like it's time scale. So federal government is 50 years, street is what quarterly. If year that, two years, every two years. you know, you're and startup you're is to, what and, next and, month, today. <laughs> yes, startups today. What are you doing tomorrow? Um, you know, the guppies of the runway world. Maybe startups um, are the guppies. Less, right? less, less than six months, right? <laughs> a lot of the time. Uh, nice. Because when you raise a venture round of funding in the startup world, you're, I mean, you're you're trying to do you're you're planning out eighteen months, hmm. right? So it's I take this amount of investment and I am showing my investors what I'm going to try to execute on in the first 18 months here. And at that point, you know, even if you backtrack because you have to fundraise and everything like that, you have to start backing up a, several months from there. So it's like how, within the first 12 to 14 months, how much traction can I realistically see with the money that I just brought in, mm -hmm. you know, given that I have to hire new people, build product and, and, and sell. And it's, you're, you're at real short timescales. So you can't be doing R&D and, and all of this uh, stuff when it, when it comes to startup, it's all about like, you know, what can you immediately hmm. jump on and, and, and sell and start bringing revenue in hmm. or traction if you don't have revenue. So um, I, I understand you're, you're getting the entrepreneurial itch again. So you want to tease us on what you're, you're, what's, what's attracting you right now? Yeah. So, so, I mean, right now I'm entrepreneur in residence, which is, very much kind of a, a temporary thing for yeah that's you know, what I mean, it's kind of in between I, I love roles. I love that about what ATDC does with the it's ER. very unique that yeah. what they do it surprised and, uh, me we're well, we're uh, Sandbox has been uh, expanding over to uh, Baton Rouge and LSU and and I look at the differences in this, this idea that Georgia Tech's been capturing people who have done something exited or in transition and bringing them in on a part-time basis for like a six-month basis to have people who have that itch who want to go back into the world. It, yeah. it is a unique situation. And, and it's, you know, on the university or the public side, that it's very counterintuitive. Counter mm -hmm. And they're very forward thinking in that regard, right? Um, 
the, but it's the, designed, the idea it's, that it's you're designing hiring someone you're itch and they're again, gonna, you're itching again. So <laughs> yeah, they're going to stay less than, than twelve months is, is is new. Um, so you know, I'm, I'm kind of working on 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 my next thing, um, which you know will be kind of uh, less than a month from now. Kind of kind of publicly getting out there about more details on that. But uh, basically, you know, moving more into uh, the the venture and, and funding side of the world and, and funding a lot of the interesting innovation um, and also really tying in. So something that's pretty interesting about Atlanta is that you have just a large number of Fortune 500s as, as, as far as you kind of. Yeah, so Deborah was mentioning yeah. that, the multi-sector perspective. Right? Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, as far industries. as cities, you're, you're talking about, you know, definitely a top five city in, in the country as far as the number of Fortune 500s in, in, yeah, in one spot. Right. And, yep, yep. And you know, if you if you start really taking into account um, companies that are also competing with each other, uh, Atlanta rises right to the top where there's there's a lot of companies playing in the same sandbox. I like sandbox. That's good use. Nice branding. That's <laughs> yep. good. I, you like that? <laughs> uh, Deborah hit Tech Squareland. <laughs> and, you hit sandbox. And, and they're and they're and they're very that's accessible. The episode right there. <laughs> um, so. In, in short, working on you know starting something exciting on on the, the venture side and, and really bringing in uh, what Atlanta has special, which is these these corporates and, and you know, startups can take advantage of this. You know, a lot of these companies in town, from the perspective of access, mm. uh, distribution, mm -hmm. um, go to market strategy, and, yeah. and, and all of that. So that's that's, good. that's what I'm focusing on next. Yeah, I could, go to market next. really is an opportunity for someone to go deep on. So. Yep. Look, Looking forward to it. So, um, uh, so those who are now intrigued by your tease there, where can they find you on the interwebs? Uh, well, you can find me on, on Twitter at, at Tiago Olson. My first name has got a kind of a weird spelling. It's T-H-I-A-G-O, uh, last name O-L-S-O-N. Uh, yeah, and so that's, that's what throws the, me. That's is probably like, the best Your last way. name is a Swedish last name, but you're Finnish, and yeah. that's just wrong. <laughs> <laughs> My whole question was, do you like Swedish fish? But you're Finnish. Oh, I, I, I do love Swedish fish. <laughs> All right. Tiago right, has made thanks, it through the hot seat. Me. Thank you very much. You can stay right there. We're going to invite uh, Deborah here and KP in here. And now we'll get our it's a chance for you guys to challenge each other. This is where it gets nasty. Duke it out. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Bring it on. Verbally. This is a chance for you to kind of, but I'm going to prime the pump here. Uh, now sit down. Sit down, KP. Settle down. Hello, not KP. Uh, I, had, I do have a couple of starter questions, but I would love for you guys to ask each other questions or challenge each other, push back on each other. Um, let's start with this one. What's, this is this shout out to my friend Brian Rich. Uh, I've worked with him on a many number of things, but uh, he always taught me this. What is the one thing you think big companies, government, universities need to stop doing when it comes to harvesting innovation? What do we need to stop doing? Stop talking about innovation. Yes. That's, so. a, great, that's a great buzzword. <laughs> Bingo! <laughs> there is zero innovation happening at innovation centers. Why is that? You just have to look at the staff, right? Innovation's about... So you were asking about... You said earlier something about definition of innovation. Mm -hmm. If you haven't read the book Abundance, make your kids read it. And Peter Diamandis says it well. He's like, abundance is about creating a, um, innovation is about creating abundance where there was scarcity. Mm. And if, I think if you stick to that, you get it, right? You surround yourself with the right people. And many of the innovation centers are about recruiting and marketing 
and you don't have kind of that hacker mentality of people that are trying to solve the next big problem um, because hacking and solving the next big problem uh, is really hard for companies. Hmm. Deborah, what do you think? What, choose, choose an audience, choose, choose a profile, and what do they need to stop doing? Um, I'm, I'm actually just thinking a little bit more about what KP said um, about that because I, I do um, think that one innovation is isolated to a certain team or person, it limits the growth of innovation. Hmm. Um, so when we think about innovation, no one owns it. You know, I, mm. I had innovation in my previous title, but I wasn't the only one doing innovation. But by placing that onus on me, it freed up the responsibility of innovation for some. Oh, interesting. And so I think it's important for all organizations, companies, startups, universities, nonprofits, whatever, to think that, you know, everyone owns innovation. And there are certain people that are probably, you know, more focused on it, and, and that's that's right because you know it takes a certain skill sets and you know training and, and learning and you know um, uh, operations. But ultimately, it's important for innovation to resonate and to seep throughout the company or throughout the organization, um, mm. and for everyone to take ownership and responsibility for driving the organization to improve, hmm. which is basically what innovation is. Tiago, what do you think? Um, I think one of the interesting things about innovation internally within, I'll just start talking about large corporations. Um, you'll have a chief innovation officer, a lot of different roles that are kind of being created, and, and it's all, for the, you know, the, they're 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 trying to do the right thing, right? So that they're placing importance on innovation, which is which is which is key. But just sometimes creating an internal role that isn't necessarily attached to uh, P and L, um, you know, they're not bringing revenue in. They're, it just it changes the power dynamic internally within that corporation, um, and. You know, there's, you'll see a lot of different in innovation initiatives anywhere from hackathons to accelerators to every, you know, that they're realizing from an ex kind of a high level perspective, they need to be innovating. Uh, but it's how do you do it and how do you do it well? And like what KP mentioned, it, a lot of times it, on the innovation side, it, it comes down to, it really comes down to people. Um, and some of the most innovative concepts and ideas are, are often external to the organization or the, at least the people that are best uh, move that forward quickly onward and upward. Um, and it's, it's trying to find that, that right intersection of like how can corporates work with uh, very fast moving startups in, in everything in an efficient manner because they're completely different, right? As a startup, you don't know how to sell into or work with a, a large company, and then as a large company, you know, getting 
meeting updates and, and emails at midnight right before you know a, a deadline and everything is just you know unplanned and, and just way out there right so it's, it's just you're on both ends of the spectrum and how do you kind of bring them together to take advantage of, of the growth in that early stage kind of startup sector right so my view is the chief, chief innovation officer is sitting right next to the chief sustainability officer. Yeah, I was going to mention and that. And they have no budget and yeah. have no capability, and innovations become a jobs program, whereas innovation is actually the opposite of a jobs program. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was thinking about that. that there's been that, that trend of chief sustainability, chief uh, cause marketing officer, chief corporate social that. responsibility officer. You know, uh, he was like, there was no tie to revenue itself. It was not lifeblood. It was... Not, it and, seemed to be nice and, having and to your point, Deborah. Corporate was, venture falls in kind of a similar bucket as well, or it's something that, depending on how well the company is doing, it might disappear in a few years, right? Mm. So you'll see a lot of volatility in corporate venture because you'll have a new program starting and then it'll disappear. Um, and and to Tiago's, some are better than others. Yeah, to Tiago's point, if you're really a venture capitalist, you would not go be part of a corporate venture program. Mm. That is not where you would live. The economics were horrible. It's, it's a waste of time. If you're really into venture capital, you go do venture capital. You don't go work for XYZ ventures at a big corporation. Well, that's, that's part of my concern with the, the idea. You mentioned sustainability. There's corporate social responsibility and yeah, diversity to inclusion is when we start to isolate it, to your point, Deborah, isolating a responsibility that really is everyone's responsibility. It, let, it lets other people off the hook, other people that have C-level offices say, ah, it's someone else's job. And I'm, I'm huh. anyway, so let me, let me pivot to a different question and then let you guys go free for all. Startup, I, I wanna make sure, I mean, we've, we've been talking about startups, we've talked about corporations, universities, federal government, they all play a role, right? This is all, they're Absolutely. all social constructs to what we're doing. Um, how, how do we make it easier for the ideas to flow? Because DOE, DOD is going to a lot of stuff that's 50 years out. You've got the, you know, the street that's thinking 18 months out. You've got startups that are thinking there. You know, in the next day or two, 30, 60 days, you've got universities that are thinking you know, somewhere further down the timeline. How do we make it easier for you? Deborah, I mean, I'm curious. You've seen it from the management consultant perspective. You've seen it from the city perspective. You've seen it from the university perspective. How do we make it easy, easier for the ideas to flow? I think it, it goes back to what we think about ownership of the ideas, and maybe uh, this resonates is just there's a hesitation to pass ideas or information or data because um, people seek ownership in it and because they want to um, take a monetization or, or some sort of value out of that. Whereas I'm of the mindset that data and ideas is, is, is a public good. Um, and that, you know, as we um, share and further develop, it improves over time, especially as, um, you know, more um, uh, access is involved. Um, so it actually benefits more parties and, and, and leverages it even further. Um, but until we um, have a better mechanism to share those ideas, um, you know, that takes it away from the, the current ownership challenges, then it's, it's harder for us to share as freely as, as we may want. Hmm. What do you think about that? Um, 
I don't think sharing ideas is the challenge. I mean, I, I, I fundamentally think that, you know, you've known me long enough. I, I operate on a closed network policy. Either you're in the circle or you're out of the circle. And if you're in the circle, we go work on things. We monetize it. We make a bunch of money. We go do things. And I think this idea of passing of open ideas, they're worth what people are, you know, if you're willing to go tell the world about some idea you have um, and not go work on it, that's interesting. But the people with the best ideas tend to be very quiet. Um, and they tend to be behind the scenes. And they tend, to, they tend to be behind their laptop with headphones on. They're not out there going and doing hackathons and being out in the open world. And um, I was interviewed a couple months ago and they said, if you had to go into a high school and pick which students to work with, which ones would they be? And I said, all the ones in detention. <laughs> Send me all the kids in detention because they're the ones that are trying to screw around and hack the system and not follow the rules. And those are the kids I want to go do stuff with. Uh, and unfortunately, what happens is uh, in this sharing of ideas, the people with the least amount of content are the ones sharing the ideas. The ones with the most amount of content are either incapable or isolated to share those ideas. And that's what you go out and dig around and find. You know, the kids that are building, you know, fusion reactors in their basement. <laughs> Up in Michigan, of all places. Michigan. Gee, many Christmas. Didn't, didn't want to focus on that GPA. Right? <laughs> <laughs> figure, figure something else to yeah, focus I mean, on. I forgot. I actually did have a question for you, Tago. Did your parents know you were doing that? They did. They did. <laughs> so they... <laughs> was, hey, Mom, I like to hear that dinner. Semi-safe Mom, about Dad, it, I know. just want to let you know. I've got a fusion reactor coming together downstairs. Yeah. The best, the best is Tiago meets my it. kids and tells them everything he did he can, that they could go do on Amazon now. <laughs> like, it's like, it's like, so much easier Amazon these Prime, days. It's like, you thanks, Tiago. If you have Amazon Prime, you can have your own planet named yeah. after you. Uh, what do you guys have for each other? Anything that you want to ask each other before we open it up to the audience? You want to challenge each other? Ask each other? <laughs> Not really. Not really? You too, too nice? Too yeah, I'm too passive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Feeling, feeling pretty, pretty good about this group here. Yeah, that's yeah. right. I don't know, Deborah. Deborah I, don't, I don't know about you. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to throw I'm some questions out at you. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think Deborah's got something that's going to just oh, do. Well, bam. Do you like Swedish goes. fish? I'm going to put it. She said chocolate. Do I like Swedish fish? Yeah. Of course I do. Right. I'm Swedish. Right. Just, just making sure. My, 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 dad's, my, my dad's mom's uh, grand, uh, father was from Fluda. Fluda Sweden. Fludman. His name was Johnson, but they thought there were too many Johnsons, so they named him Fludman. So, there you go. You're into my family right now. Nice. You look us at ancestry.com. Ancestry yeah. All right, so uh, well, since you guys are, are timid, I, which is ironic because you guys are not timid people. No, we're not. Uh, I do have an audience here uh, that is not animatronic, and they are here. Uh, I'm going to turn it to them because I, I did implore upon them. Please bring us a question. So who has a question? Uh, I think uh, I'm going to see. Oh, come on over here. Come on over here. Line on up. I'm going to turn this mic off and then move my mic so you can talk about it. Just introduce yourself, ask your question, take your backpack off, don't knock over our, our microphones, Just please. Take, take that off. <laughs> All right. Go for it. First, long time listener, first time caller. Hi, long time first time, thanks for having me. Dittos. Sorry to bother you at work. Um, have you guys in your experience ever seen corporate are, innovation are, centers? Are, oh, I'm sorry. On. I'm Brian Itzaviano and I work for the Combine. Uh, have you guys, in your experience, ever seen corporate innovation centers rate their success on an ROI? Hmm. If, there is, if there is no investment, there can be no ROI. 
Hiring a few people, renting some office space is not an investment. Hmm. It's a denominator problem. <laughs> <laughs> Any contrary thoughts? Um, you know, I, I, I don't have any hard numbers or, or, or info on, on that end as far as you know, the, the way different innovation centers really step back and say, okay, over the past three years, what have, what have we you know, kind of accomplished on that end? Um, I, I think a, a lot of times they, they use it as a, you know, a, a front gate to you know, a lot of these companies just have so many inbounds from startups and entrepreneurs wanting to work with them. And they need someone to, to really filter through that um, and you know, get some signal from, from a lot of that noise. Um, so it, I don't know how to point to, to, to some of those that are, that are more successful than, than others, but you know, a lot of times it's, it's a, a good filtering mechanism, right? Um, they'll, they'll do some internal, you know, they have cool spaces a lot of the time and, and, and everything like that, so they'll be, um, but a lot of that is, is, is really just as far as you know, kind of bringing startups in and, and kind of interfacing with them and helping filter through who's real and who's not. I think you see more, more ROI out of R&D centers than you do out of innovation centers, whether it's licensing of IP, um, joint ventures. There, there's um, always there's things steer, you can track. I steer away from the innovation people. I like going and hanging out with the VPs of R&D and the R&D departments because they're much more disciplined in how they think about um, should I license this, should I build it, should I, you know, they're looking at revenue streams because guess what, they have a P&L. There's someone beating the snot out of them around their economics. So um, I think R&D centers are under more scrutiny around ROIs because they have, you know, big denominators. Yeah. But I feel like you, you will get, every once in a while, you'll get the entrepreneurship where there's an internal venture that started, right? Um, and there, they'll, there'll be some subcommittee or, you know, people that are, you know, board members of, of, of the particular company or, or whatnot, and they'll try to essentially build a startup within the larger organization, right? And the big thing that they have in their favor on that end is, is, is money, mm -hmm. right? So they can, they can fund it, they can fund it well, so they never have to focus on that. What they have constraints on is living within a large organization, all of the, you know, the handcuffs that they're, that they're working with there. But, you know, they're, they obviously know there's, there's a pain point for them, so they're doing it for a specific reason, and they've got a lot of money to, to throw behind it. So that's something that um, some corporates will do much better than others. Others. I, I think it's also important to note that innovation centers are very different across the board. So mm -hmm. yeah. it's, it's you can't lump it all, because the yep. mission of an innovation center per company is, is, is very different. different. So there are some innovation centers that are very actually internal facing. And so their main point is to do performance improvement within mm. the innovation or within the company. And then there are ones that are geared towards more investment of startups and you know those kind of uh, cooperations. And then there are others that are you know, connected through a university that you know, the main thing is uh, HR you know, mm -hmm. to recruit students and to recruit the mm -hmm. best and brightest. So, like, we, we, we need to first keep in mind that, you know, depending on the innovation center and its mission, it's whether it's following its mission. 
Um, and then the second point around innovation, um, definitely within local government um, and, and perhaps others, is that it's, it's, there, it's sometimes hard to find the direct causation mm. of what sparks it. So, you know, whether this exact program or initiative actually brought through this breakthrough, you know, at this quarterly earning report or, you know, the next year, it's, it's hard to prove exactly. And, and that's one of the difficulties around um, innovation and, you know, the struggle that, that we face. And, and that type of um, overemphasis sometimes discourages risk taken. Um, and innovation. So there, there's a, a few caveats when we talk about RI with innovation centers dependent on the innovation center itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, you know you need to do it. It's just hard to measure what the ROI is a lot of times, right? So hackathons and, and accelerators and all of this, you know, there's a cultural impact, but how do you, how do you measure that? Yeah, it's like economic right. development. That's right. That's right. Great words. Great words. All right, Ed. Hey, Scott. Thanks. Yeah, who are you? My name is Ed. Uh, I'm a <laughs> concept uh, stage founder here at The Garage. Uh, and so, okay, I'm new to ATL and Lana, however you want to say it. Say 20 years ago, there's nothing here. Institutions have primed the pump of our tech scene. Do you guys think there's a stage at which they're inherent uh, structural inability to like take the scene further. Uh, can you see where their institutions are just adding to the scene and the VC and the private money should be there already and isn't? Or like is there, can you see that the, the maturation rate uh, should be happening and isn't? Or can you quantify that at all? Um, so our biggest next obstacle is social. We got to stop acting like a bunch of rednecks. Um, the the idea of like social awareness. I mean, I talk to a lot of executives in other in other cities and countries, and their perception of Atlanta, take apart tech scene, right? They look at us as a bunch of rednecks mm -hmm. that are not, you know. They see us as Georgia, right? Yeah, Georgia. They say the South. Yeah, and Southeast. I had a major major VC tell me that the next time I see like another. VC out of Buckhead that wants to go hunting and go play golf to do a deal, like she'll never come back, right? So I think our next big obstacle <laughs> is social. And I think it's getting fixed because we're getting so many people from outside of Atlanta coming in. And I told her, I was like, stop going to Buckhead, go to the old fourth ward, stop, you know, stop hanging out where all the rednecks are, start hanging out where the more progressive people are. I think that's our biggest next hurdle is, you know, unfortunately sometimes our perception, the perception of Atlanta and Georgia is the reality, depending on where you end up in Atlanta. And I see more conversations about that. It's funny, you know, we get lumped into like, you guys are like North Carolina, right? You don't believe in like homosexuality. You guys have decided not to believe in that, right? I'm like, no, we're in Atlanta, that's different. You know, and, and I think those are the, those weird narratives around social agenda are becoming more and more important because money's a commodity. It's a wire transfer away. Um, so it's really what you find with people that are trying to make big changes, they want to be part of communities that get it. 
And I think more and more we're, we're, we need to accelerate as being a place that gets it um, and that has an openness to the rest of the world. And I think that's our next biggest obstacle. It's not money. We have a great airport. People come and go all the time. You know, we have great facilities. We have Georgia Tech's an amazing resource. Um, no bias there. But um, I think it's really the social agenda stuff that's going to bite us in the ass. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a big thing as far as, in one word, just brand as far as city, state, where we are, um, and changing that from a national and international perspective. And how do you do that? The way you do that is not by looking at another tech hub and just copying. That, I mean, that's, that's not how you become known for something or build a brand by just replicate. You look at Silicon Valley and just say, we'll do exactly the same thing. We're going to have all. That, that's not how you build a brand, right? So it's, it's how do you build that around Atlanta and look at essentially what differentiators are. Um, you know, as a, as a company, you kind of look at three things. You go, I, I want to near, be near money. Um, I want to be near you know, customers or talent, right? And, and talent's kind of the, the very trailing third. But if you look at any big city, I mean, you're going to have a lot of, uh, there's going to be good universities and talent around. So it, it, it really comes down to, okay, well, maybe one of the big differentiators here is, you know, customers and a lot of distribution opportunities and access opportunities with some of these larger uh, corporations. That's, that's one thing that's different. Um, but I think the key thing is just not trying to copy another ecosystem, um, but differentiate and do your own thing. You can either watch Silicon Valley or Real Housewives of Atlanta <laughs> or Atlanta. Yep. And that's the perception. Of, I mean, that, that's, that's the world, right? I mean, that's, that's what people understand. And I think that, that's the shifting that has to happen. We, this being the next Silicon Valley, like Silicon Valley goes way back, people. Like it's mm -hmm. not, yeah, it didn't it's happen yesterday. Years. Yeah, it didn't happen yesterday. And layer upon layer upon layer. Yeah, and, and, and you have a new, you have new variables that you have to work with that, that, that start to look at the next 20 years that you have to be real about. We got time for uh, another question. Yeah. Hello. Who's next? John Avery, Panasonic. Um, related to your comments, KP, there's, uh, and I think Deborah, you mentioned also, a lot of problems in our big cities have to do with economic inequality. And that is not just an Atlanta problem, that's the West Coast problem as well. It's pretty much universal, yeah. which is to say that so far it doesn't look like technology has proven to be an equalizer in that dimension. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you guys, having been both in and outside of government, is there any low-hanging fruit that you see that we can use to leverage that would help equalize that playing field or improve that situation? Deborah, you, you hope inclusive yeah. innovation. That's your thing. Yeah, time. no, I think it's a Good couple job. things around around the technology. It's it's not just um, the access to it. Um, but it's the usage and the application of it. Um, and so, you know, the most, most of the latest studies, I mean, Pew had, had really good study that said that, you know, most um, Americans have access to, to cell phones. You know, that, that was a, a very low barrier. But um, they lack access and data and the data plans, you know, because they don't necessarily have the credit or, or they don't necessarily have, have the, the, the permanence um, that's, that needs um, to be associated with the, the long-term data plans that you and I might be familiar with. Um, and with that, that means that, 
they don't have the ease um, in, in knowledge and information and setting up the networks and you know writing the resumes and doing the, the job searches that, that you and I might have. Um, so I think that's, that's one consideration to think about. The, the other consideration is um, the application um, of, of the data and the information. Um, so again, you know, we've kind of released tons of information and, you know, um, data out there, but then how do people use it and apply it? And how do they incorporate it into their day-to-day -day lives mm. that would improve it? So I think those are um, certain equity accessibility issues that um, aren't um, quite there yet when we're talking about um, data and technological breakthroughs. Mm -hmm. I think and, as you're saying that, it makes me think about it's, it's a lot of the informal networks that we take for granted. Mm -hmm. uh, as you were saying earlier, on having a college degree, that that means you you have a network of relationship that you mm -hmm. had. Yeah. And if we're dealing with that disparity right there, you're, you're all of a sudden having a, a disconnect between informal networks. Yeah, I mean, I, I think startups move too quickly to trying to be like corporations. They set up websites for recruitment. They say minimum qualifications. Uh, my second startup, my, my second 10 hires were all ex-cons. I didn't care, right? I mean, it was like, I'm gonna test your IQ, I'm gonna test your problem-solving ability, and can you hack that router? Because I need people that understand logical, you know, logic and having logical exploits are not taught in college. You can go take those classes and all that. But you, I think startups move way too quickly to credentialed hires. Mm versus just saying, I want people that are just raw talents, back to my hiring kids that are in detention. You know, and I think um, startups have the best opportunity to locate in places that are non-traditional. I mean, you saw software, when we went west side and built out that space on west side, people were like, you're crazy, you're gonna get broken into. We got broken in zero times, because once a quarter I threw a barbecue for the neighborhood. We became part of the community and we located in a place where nobody else wanted to be and we hired people that were non-traditional. I think startups just move so quickly. I think it's through the venture capital coaching. Oh, you need to hire someone that's got a master's degree in XYZ. I'm like, no, I want someone that can solve problems. And um, yeah. I think we have to do a better job of that and like locating in places um, that other people that, you know, NCR's setting up shop next door. That's great for NCR. Why, you know, startups can be West Side, they can be at English Avenue, they can be anywhere. Yeah. They can be College Park. They can yeah, be I mean, I, I, I think a lot of it is kind of stemmed also, if you just look at the way the money flows, you know, for, for early stage tech companies and everything, you have uh, some of the VCs who, you know, really have started it all in, in the valley and every, everything and it kind of has created a culture where i mean you do have i mean huge gender gaps in in tech and, and everything and it, and it kind of perpetuates where um a lot of times um as this a, a venture capitalist you you invest in someone that you relate to right and and it just kind of all trickles down into the Diff, you know, different startups that end up getting more funding compared to others, and you know the hires that they end up making and everything, and it, it kind of kind of trickles all all the way down. Um, and it, it's it's a really hard 
problem to, to solve in, in kind of the, on the tech side uh, because it's it it's a, a system issue. that's that's yeah. it's human nature and it's a system that's been ingrained for a yeah. while, right? Uh, um, I agree. I mean, I, I think one of the things I, I know we've talked about, it, Scott, is that this idea that interns you're not going to pay interns, right? The problem is the minute you do internships where you're not going to pay interns good money, right? you will automatically attract kids of privilege. Mm -hmm. When I was over at Clark Atlanta, they said, yep. hey, do you want to hire some interns? I'm like, yeah. They're like, well, you understand these kids work full time to pay them for school. And to a, to a startup, paying 10 versus 15 versus 20, 20 bucks an hour, who gives a shit, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's 20 bucks an hour. If they're the right talent, pay them, and immediately you'll attract. I mean, the kids that can yeah. do, I mean, it's like the agency world, yeah. you know, work. Oh, unpaid internships. Well, who's going to do an, when I worked yeah, for that, Frank Geary, Frank yeah. was notorious. Unpaid interns, Harvard GSD grads, unpaid well, interns. Be, be, yeah, yeah, I mean, pulling, it's all kids of privilege. You're pulling from Ivy League and Ivy League's going to, you know, it, it's interesting if you're coming from DC's privilege. infamous for you, that. Yeah, DC's infamous for that. But I, you know, I also know, um, got me thinking uh, in terms of seeing the, um, the flow of, uh, of, of the Harvard Business School and the Whartons who weren't going to Wall Street anymore, once they started flowing out to the valley, I knew there was an issue because- VC's hot. Yeah, <laughs> all that stuff. I'm gonna sneak one more question in here, uh, and, and mainly because uh, he was part of the winning team of the last MARTA hackathon, and now grad student. Nathaniel, you wanna introduce yourself? Yeah, sure, so uh, I'm Nathaniel Horodam. I'm a grad student here at Georgia Tech, and uh, after that glowing introduction- uh, and, and you, former, former management. Former management consultant, and after that glowing introduction you gave of uh, Tiago, I just wanted to state for the record that I was in his class at Vanderbilt undergrad. So I, 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 I know you. Well, thanks for the question. And, uh... <laughs> great, great question. Great school. Sorry, I, 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 I endorse the Commodores. So, by the way. So uh, my, my question actually revolves more around selling innovation. Um, from my management consulting experience, mostly doing federal work, you know, I know there are kind of two prevailing mentalities in government sector when it comes to procurement, and that's uh, the old trope, uh, nobody ever got fired for hiring IBM, and uh, basically the lowest, lowest cost response uh, to an RFP. So, you know, as we get into this smart city space where all of a sudden now the city is new, the municipality is a new consumer of technologies in a way they haven't been before, how do you open up that sales opportunity as a startup that's looking to, um, you know, potentially capitalize on those opportunities? Yeah, that, I mean, that, that's a great point. So from, I, I think even the city of Atlanta has a RFI out for smart city technology in general, right? So as a startup, how do you, how do you actually have a, a, a shot at something like that um, when it comes to actually getting a, a grant or you know, kind of uh, winning one of those you know, RP that goes out and sending in a proposal and winning? Um, and, and to be honest, when at the DOD, when I was there, you know, starting to look through a lot of the different companies applying and everything, the, the worst thing, the thing that I absolutely hated is there's some companies that are just very good at winning grants and never actually commercialize anything. Grant mills. Um, they're called, yeah, they're grant mills grant or mills. cyber mills or, you know, they're mills. And 
the worst part about it is that sometimes there's actually there's a bias towards them because you you look at it and they go oh they've successfully completed 10 other you know grants or, or, or proposals or like all, all of this so they've they've been successful in the past they've won these in the past so the least risk way of, of moving forward as me as an individual is to just you know give them another grant um, and bet on them again uh, versus another company that may have something transformative that has no history in working with the government um, so it's it's how do you how do you really get by that and that's a hard question yeah, the, on, the only startups I've seen of late that have been able to go to government as Palantir, that if they've figured out yeah. how to get money out of the government to do their stuff. Mm. Um, smart city is a whole nother problem because you're also talking about a city level, right? At a federal level, there are ways to get around the system and get into places and, and go off book a little bit, not through an RFP process, if, if you're really driving something interesting. Um, and I think that's going to be the ongoing challenge with kind of smart city is really how do you figure out what the revenue model is. If you come to me and say, hey, KP, I need an investment. I'm going after smart cities. The answer is no. I don't need to hear the rest of the pitch because the minute you say you're selling to government, it's over. Mm -hmm. So you have to figure out ways to start getting your product to market adjacent to government yep. um, to, to start getting traction. Um, because you want, I mean, look, you're not going to go through the RFP process. You're not going to do any of that stuff. However, there are other options that you take to, to get into commercial markets adjacent to the cities. Deborah, you've been on the city level. What's, what's the so answer in Pittsburgh, we launched PGH Lab, which was actually an explicit program to get startups into local government. And it was actually based on San Francisco's entrepreneurship and resident, which actually was another program which took startups into local government as well. Kansas City has another good program um, that is inviting startups in. So, um, you know, it is these cities themselves recognize the procurement difficulties um, and the challenges. So they've actually created mechanisms for startups to engage with them so they can become more innovative. Um, the way that we were able to do in Pittsburgh was that we actually took um, the legal team and the Office of Management and Budget, basically the people in charge of the budget, into our steering committee mm. and then crafted the program together. So then what would have been the biggest um, naysayers became our biggest advocates. Mm. Um, and so, you know, we, we, you know, selected the startups that could help us address the challenges that we called out. Um, Boston has a really another really good program that does that. So I, I think there are selective cities that are trying to find better ways to engage with startups and have created mechanisms to do that. Um, and yeah, the trend is getting to have more cities doing that. Actually, it's it's also hard, right? I mean, I think like in Atlanta, they you talk about the venture community in Atlanta. Oh, tell me when you have five million in revenue. The reason they do that is they have zero ability to do technical validation. And it's a lot to ask a city to do technical validation on your product and take that risk. So yeah. them seeing a track record, because they can't do it. So if you say, hey, I've done these three things, and I'm in market, and I'm doing things, and th then they don't have to. That's why VCs in Atlanta ask you if you have revenue, because they have no idea what they're looking at. The only validation they have is that you have customers and revenue, because they God knows they don't know what, they don't look at your code or anything, right? So I, I think governments are in the same spot. It, it's, 
as a taxpayer, you don't want them taking risks on things that may or may not work. Um, and so I think it's important that you get kind of commercial validation outside of the city because it makes it easier for them. I mean, it's not, it's not a knock against cities. That's just, they're not set up for that. I would also recommend that you check out 1776 and Code for America. These mm, are two mm -hmm. organizations that actually are created programs that explicitly help startups work with local government and have actually a few good startups that have actually made a lot of inroads in local government um, with their products and seen some good financial success. Yeah, good, good, good insights. You know, having, having sales traction um, normally ends up being with corporates and, and at the same time, uh, the smaller the company, typically faster the sales cycle um, and just, just having some of that track record de-risks the, the partnership in a, a ton of different ways. Even if you're working with, you have a bunch of different small customers and everything, but just getting out there and getting your first half million, million in revenue, that, that, that says a whole lot about your technology. It has to, has to actually work if people are paying for you or for the, for the product and they continue to pay for it. So it says something right there. Well, uh, that's, uh, that brings us to the end of uh, another episode of the Hump Day Exchange. I, I do want to thank um, our uh, technology director, J Jared Servasso, and our operations manager, Ian Edelson, who's pulled this together. Appreciate your, your help and, uh, and support and leadership on this. So I want to thank our guests, KP Reddy, Deborah Lamb, and Tiago Olson, our strategic partners, the University Financing Foundation, Gateway Development Services, ATDC, Scheller College of Business, Square on Fifth Apartment, Keysight Technologies, MARTA, Honeywell, the Combine, and the Bridge Community. That's fun having that many partners. Um, be sure to check out TechSquareATL.com for our regular stories about TechSquare. Learn more about the Sandbox ATL membership network, membership network at SandboxATL.com. And book your breakthrough event right here at BookTheGarage.com. A final thank you to you, our listeners. If you like what you're hearing, we'd love it if you shared this podcast with your friends. Be sure to subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes and leave a review, please. Um, so until you see the camel, silhouette, yeah, the camel silhouette beamed into the sky again, this has been the Hump Day Exchange.